Welcome to the Resonate Boise Sermons Podcast. Today, you'll be hearing from our site pastor, Jonah Link, as he continues our sermon series going through the Sermon on the Mount. Amen. I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna sit down today. I hope you guys don't mind. Um, I'm pretty pretty sore today. I started working out again two weeks ago with Joshua. He got me back in the groove, and th- so I did legs on Thursday with Taylor O'Toole, and I c- couldn't really walk on Saturday. So um, this is kind of where we find ourselves this morning. So one quick announcement that I wanted to do, Gabby, before you leave, uh, you want to come up here real quick. I have a gift for you. Gabby and Seth. Uh, Seth isn't here today. That's the only reason he's not coming up as well. But uh, Gabby and Seth have served on our staff team. Um, I think you were two years and Seth was one year. And they gave so much to our church during their time on staff. And in this next season of life, they're trying to figure out, and what has God made me for? What do I want to give my life to, specifically my career to? And so her and Seth are just on a journey of figuring that out. And so we as a church have a little gift for her and Seth just to say thank you for the time that they served and cared for our church and our people. And so one of Gabby's gifts is making this space look awesome and providing coffee for you. And so she's going to continue to serve in our church. And likewise with Seth, we'll continue to serve in our church. But I just mostly wanted to let all of you know how thankful we are for Seth and Gabby. And they are going to be transitioning off. So, yep, that's all. Appreciate you. Yeah, Seth, wherever you are. Um, Anyways, that is something that I've wanted to do for the last couple of weeks, and we just haven't really had the people in town, and so we just had to we just had to go for it today. We have so much going on in the life of our church right now, right? We heard a couple of announcements. School is starting back up. Uh, villages are starting in the YoPro world. We're starting with five villages there. I mean, there is a lot of stuff that is going on within our church, and it has been uh, a, a lot over the last couple of weeks, and it's going to be a lot for the next couple of weeks as well, but it has been such a joy and so much fun. And so as we start the campus gathering again, I wanted to take a second to thank you guys as well. Most of you, if not a good majority of you, came to either know Jesus in college or became a part of Resonate and were discipled in college. Someone gave up their time, their effort, their energy to pursue you while you were in college. And so now we get to do that as a church. And so I want to say thank you for one, giving your time. If you are helping with freshmen move in on Thursday or you want to take work off and help freshmen move in, thank you for volunteering your time and secondarily, I thank you for the resources that you give towards the campus. A lot of what we do is financed by you guys. And so thank you in both of those ways. And we're excited to see how God moves on campus. But flashback, uh, to start the sermon today, I want to give you a little bit of a picture in your mind. I have, in fourth grade, I was at Cold Valley Christian Elementary School, private school, uh, pretty tight leash. You couldn't do a whole lot at recess. And my, my buddies and I, we eventually started to realize that we were developing crushes on girls, right? I don't know what age that was for you guys, but we were like, all right, I'm starting to like these girls. What do we do about it? And so we'd get together and try to figure out like, okay, what do we do to help them notice us? What am I going to do? 
I don't know what you guys did, but we decided it would be brilliant to take these four square balls. You know those rubber four square balls? Like, this would be brilliant. We'll take those four square balls, not get too close to them, and just huck them at them. We'll just toss these balls at them because they'll have to notice us. Brilliant, right? Yeah, Duncan likes it. So we would toss these balls at them, and then eventually we're like, I think we might, might have to take it a step further. Like, we're scared to death to talk to them. We don't want to be that close to them, but we want them to notice us. How are we going to do this? Eventually, we, we caved, and we started doing what the girls wanted to do. We started, like, playing with dolls. We, we started having conversation. Oh, my God, it was brutal. But the reality for us is what we wanted to do was be so near to these girls because we had a crush on them, and that's what you do when you're in fourth grade. But the, the thing was for us, we were going to do anything that we had to do in order to deepen this relationship that we wanted to have with the girls that we had a crush on. That's just what we did. And for you, sitting here right now, you probably have relationships in your life where you're like, man, I would do anything to get nearer, to get closer, maybe in proximity, maybe relationally. You would do anything. You'd sacrifice anything to be near to someone that you want to be near to. If you, today I want to take us to a place where you, by the end of the service, you're going to desire, and not because of me, because of the Spirit of God doing something in your heart, by the end of the service, the hope is that you would have a moment where you would, are willing to do whatever it takes to experience the richness, the fullness of knowing and being near to Jesus. I want you to experience the power that God's Spirit has put in your life, has put around you. I want you to simply allow Jesus to transform every part of your life. And we see this through two disciplines that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, and those are prayer and fasting. So those are the two topics that we're going to hit on today. And so I want to give you two quick little definitions of each of them. Prayer, really simply, it's just communicating with the God who created us, communicating with the God who created us. You can find all sorts of definitions for prayer, all sorts of quotes, what people lean towards when it comes to prayer. But this seems to be the most simple definition for us this morning. And secondarily, fasting. It's going without food for a period of time to give your whole self more fully over to God. To give yourself more fully over to God. And so fasting... Typically, we think about fasting, and maybe in the season of Lent, you think about, oh, I'm going to fast from Netflix. And it's like, okay, that's probably more abstinence. Like you're choosing to not partake in that thing that you could live without if it didn't exist. Food, we need it to exist, right? God made us to eat food so that we could live, quite literally. And it's a gift to us, and it's a grace to us in a lot of ways, because food tastes pretty good for the most part. And so fasting, you're choosing to give up food to more fully uh, give yourself over to God. That's the purpose of fasting. That's why we do it. And so a little bit of a background on these two disciplines. Mark kind of started us out last week. These are two disciplines that Jesus expected his disciples to participate in. It was just an expectation. And so when Jesus, as we'll see in the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't instruct them to do it. He just says, when you do it. Because it wasn't a need for Jesus to instruct them because it was already a part of the Jewish culture and the Jewish religion at the time. So if you think about, there is this book, it's called the, I don't want to say it wrong, the Didache. It's a first century document about the early church and how the Jewish people were supposed to interact on a daily basis and what they were supposed to participate in. This document said that Jewish 
individuals were supposed to fast on Wednesday, a Friday of every single week. And so that's why Jesus just says, when you fast, that's something that they were already participating in. And likewise with prayer, when we talked about prayer, I think it was early April, I taught through Acts chapter two and specifically Matthew six on prayer. And we learned that the early church, man, they prayed all the time. It was very normal for them to drop what they were doing, head to the temple and pray with their fellow believers. It was a regular, regular rhythm for them. So to give us a little bit of a picture, uh, Hudson Taylor has this quote. He says in Shanzi, um, he, he's a, a Chinese missionary uh, of old. And he says, in Shanzi, I found Chinese Christians who were accustomed to spending time in fasting and prayer. They recognized that this fasting, which so many dislike, right? We don't necessarily love this practice, which requires faith in God, since it makes one feel weak and poorly. It really is really a divinely appointed means of grace. Perhaps the greatest hindrance to our work is our own imagined strength. And in fasting, we learn what poor, weak creatures we are, dependent on a meal of meat for the little strength which we are so apt to lean on. We're so apt to lean on this meal that gives us strength. So church, for us, I think it seems pretty easy uh, to give for the most part, right? Like maybe you struggled with giving possessions money away early on in your walk, but as you give, you learn to love it in a lot of ways, right? Right? For the mo- Maybe? No? Maybe I have this backwards. Uh, For me, it was a little bit easier for me to give than it was to start fasting. Fasting for me is a really difficult spiritual discipline that I have had a hard time with over the years. Even up to today, I still have a hard time with it. And And we'll talk about some of those things and the reasons why. But I really do think that fasting is something that we need to regularly participate in. And I'm going to show you uh, through the Sermon on the Mount. So if you want to take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 6. I don't got the face mic today, so I'm trying to do it with one hand, you know. That's why I got to sit also. Matthew chapter 6. You're going to see, uh, Mark pointed this out last week. In the section of giving to the needy, the Lord's Prayer, and fasting, you're going to see that Jesus says in verse 2, verse 5, and verse 16, he says, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. It's an expectation that he, Jesus, is expecting his followers to walk in and to live into when you do these things. So, uh, at face value, we know at least these are things that s- Christians are supposed to do. We'll talk about the motivations in a minute. But at face value, we know that these are practices that are good for us. Why is that? Well, in our secular world today, fasting is probably the least uh, congruent with culture. It is one of the things that uh, if you look at fasting at face value, it is denying a need of your own for someone else. You're denying your own need for sustenance, for food, for energy, and completely giving that over to God and expecting God to fill that void that our bodies physically need. It makes no sense in a culture that tells us, hey, you do whatever you need to do. Whatever you need is what's most important. If you need to quit that job, if you need to go to this place, if you need to move here, like it's all about you. And so a spiritual discipline and practice that is quite literally the opposite, denying yourself 
for a more fully engaged relationship with God is what fasting is. And so, yes, it's an expectation for us to pray and fast. I can't remember who was asking this morning before church. Was it you, Duncan? Like, do we, do we need to fast? The answer is really simply yes. Jesus says, when you fast, it should be a regular rhythm for us. But this is not a sermon to guilt trip you into these things. Jesus, when he talks in the Sermon on the Mount, he's not saying when you do these because he wants you to do them out of obligation. I'm not sitting here trying to create legalism in us whatsoever. I don't want you to feel like you have to do them just because you're supposed to do them. And you're going to see why. Jesus speaks to the motivations. And Mark said last week, which was, I think, brilliant. He said, we have to give for an audience of one. It matters. And the audience of one is Jesus himself. If there's any other motivation for giving, it's probably not the right one. I think similarly with prayer and fasting, our motivation has to be solely for the audience of one, which is Jesus. So let's look into prayer on an individual level, and then we'll jump into fasting. Let's start with verse, uh, verse 5 in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to walk through what Jesus has to say about prayer. Because there seems to be a lot of similarities between the two when it comes to motivation. So starting with prayer, this is what Jesus says. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So Jesus quite literally says, don't pray like the hypocrites pray. Don't pray like them. Pray, they pray that others might see them, that others might recognize them for their quote-unquote holiness or righteousness that they are trying to display. Prayer isn't to be done like the hypocrites did in Jesus' day. And as Mark described, what they were, they were just actors. Hypocrites were that word that we read in our English language was used at the time to describe actors, people that would just put on a scene, try to relay a message that maybe wasn't even true about themselves. And so they saw the world as kind of their stage. And so they just were acting. And during this time, it was a very normal part of a Jewish Christian's life to pray three times a day, like, and to do it publicly, it was very, very normal. But... Because of human sinful hearts, because of our motivations for things other than the audience of one, which is Jesus, we can tend to have motives that are incorrect. We can tend to have motives that take us away from God's design for that very practice. So you don't have to raise your hands or anything right here. I'm not trying to guilt trip you or out you. But have you ever gone to, say, a prayer meeting just to show your face? Like, so that everyone else in the room knows that you're there. Hey, I've been there, Duncan. I feel you. Like, have you ever went to village just so that everyone in your village knows that you showed up? Like, what's your motivation behind going to A, B, C, D? Like, what's the reason behind it? What's the reason that you pray? For the hypocrites, the reason for praying was simply that other people would see them and think that they were, they were all that spiritually. That they had it all figured out. That was their purpose in praying in public. And Jesus says that is not it. And for us, it's so easy to seek that worldly reward, right? To the recognition of others. It's just too easy, right? 
all you have to do is show up and you'll get that recognition. All you have to do is pray that one prayer out loud and you might not even mean it, but people are going to recognize that you were there and that you participated. Is that the motivation that we seek? Unfortunately, it probably is at times, but Jesus is steering us somewhere else. The second half of verse 5, Jesus says that they may be seen by others. Jesus isn't criticizing the action of praying in public. He's criticizing the motivation that lies beneath it, which is what we've seen through all of the Sermon on the Mount so far, is Jesus has been so intentional about getting to the root cause of why we do what we do. Everything that he has talked about up to this point is teaching us that our hearts are sinful and we need a savior that can redeem the most dark and broken parts of our heart. That's what Jesus is doing throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount. And so because hypocrites, they aren't praying with the proper motivations, don't be like them. Don't do it. That's not the reward that we want. That should not be the reward that we want. And because they're trying to be seen by others, this is what you see in verse 7. Because they're trying to be seen, it says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. I think they're going to be heard for their many words. And in reality, it turns into powerless prayer. There's, there's nothing there. There's nothing there when our motivations are in the wrong place. Can God do whatever he wants? Yes, absolutely. But just like the Gentiles that are mentioned here in verse 7, because they're trying to be seen by others, it leads them to pray a bunch of empty phrases with the wrong motivations, and it leads them to powerless prayer. And Jesus wants us far from that. Makes me think of 1 Kings 18. If you want to flip there, you can. I'm going to paraphrase it quite a bit, but I think this story is so helpful when it comes to the words that we use and how God sees the words that we use. So in 1 Kings 18, there's a story of Elijah and Ahab. Ahab is essentially leaning towards and promoting the gods of Baal, like which are not uh, in relation to the God of Israel. They are quite literally completely the opposite. And so Elijah comes in and says, hey, you're steering this ship the wrong way, man. Like we have got to figure this out. God of Israel is the only God we should serve. So what happens is Elijah, he instructs Ahab to bring all the Israelites and all the prophets of Baal to Mount Carmel. And I got a visit there back in March and it was one of the coolest things to see this story specifically like come to life. But what happened was, Elijah's like, I got an idea. We're going to have a little bit of a cook-off, is my paraphrase of it. Because what they did is they were going to make a sacrifice of a bull on an altar, and they were going to say, okay, if your God is real, prophets of Baal, you're going to pray to your God. It's going to light it on fire. It's going to light that bull on fire, and you're not going to do anything. And I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to build an altar. I'm going to put a bull on it. And I'm going to pray to my God, and he's going to light that sacrifice on fire. That's what's going to happen. And what you read in the uh, verse, where is it? Verse 26 of chapter 18, they start praying in the morning to the prophets or to the gods of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And then at noon, Elijah starts mocking them, saying, Oh, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. He's probably going to the bathroom. Like, he's probably asleep. What's going on here? He's not doing anything. 
And in verse 28 it says, and they cried aloud and cut themselves as was their custom and lances until the blood gushed out from them. And as midday passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the oblation, which I believe actually means like, hey, this is when it's supposed to happen. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. So you can imagine what's going on here. 450 prophets of Baal running around in circles around this altar, essentially crying out to the gods of Baal to light this thing on fire and nothing, absolutely nothing. And Elijah mocks them a little bit. And then Elijah says, okay, prophets of Israel, come near to me, watch this. And this is what Elijah prays. He says, uh, I should have marked it. Oh, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known to you this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, oh, Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, oh, Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And in a moment, the altar is lit on fire. And what's super interesting is you read even a piece of that in, in the middle of those two uh, things that I just paraphrased. And they, Elijah literally soaks the altar three different times with a bunch of water. He literally just like soaks it and then prays to God real quick. A few concise, clear words. God does exactly what he asks of them in a moment. I think that's, that shows us the power of prayer when we go to God. We don't need a bunch of empty phrases Friends, we don't need a bunch of words for God to hear our hearts. He doesn't need a bunch of words for us to, or for him to operate within his will. Like he doesn't need a bunch of words. And so what the Gentiles are doing and just babbling on and what Ahab and the prophets of Baal were doing, just babbling on. Well, first they weren't praying to the God of Israel, so that's not going to get them far. But when we pray, man, we pray exactly what we need to pray because we look at verse 8 in chapter 6 and what does it say? It says, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. God knows exactly what you need. Tell him. There's no need to be all fancy and ornate in our language. We serve a God that has all the power in the world that knows your very heart before you go to him. So say exactly what you need. So church, I, I want to steer us clear of being actors. I want to steer us clear of saying all of these words when we pray for the sake of saying words, for the sake of being impressive to the people around us. We aren't, we aren't that impressive. We just aren't. And we don't need to be because God is. So how should we pray? How does Jesus instruct his disciples to pray? Uh, number one, we pray to our Father in secret. We pray to our Father in secret. Go into your room. Shut your door. Make yourself a prayer closet and get on your knees and get before God. Pray to our Father in secret. I, I don't think that Jesus is saying that you have to pray in secret. We see Jesus when he gets baptized by John the Baptist. He prays in public. We see multiple different times throughout Scripture people praying publicly. That's not what Jesus is trying to steer us clear of. It goes back to the motivation. If you're sitting in your room, you close your door, who is there to impress? Who's there to impress? There's no one to impress there. It's just you and God. The Lord, God is trying to guard our hearts against our sinful motivations. So if you're motivated other than to just be with your Jesus, maybe you need to go, and go into a room and shut your door and get in the secret place. 
Strip away the uh, strip away anything that could get in the way of your intimacy with your God. Number two, we pray specific prayers that align with God's very heart. We pray specific prayers that align with God's very heart. And this is what Jesus says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread as we forgive us our, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So Jesus gives us this example like, hey, if you don't know how to pray, this is a great place to start. Like this would be a fantastic template for you to begin to work through as you learn how to talk to me, how to converse with me. Jesus is handing us this template that is after his very heart. You look at the first verse. We talked through this in, uh, in April, so I'm, I'm going to go somewhat quick through it. But the first one, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I think of reverence. Reverence. You praise God for who he is. You tell him how incredible, how awesome, how powerful, how perfect, how gracious, how merciful he is. You could go on and on and on. In fact, uh, we had a pastor come up from Texas and speak to our staff. This is probably four years ago now. And he was teaching us through this very thing. And when he taught through the first line, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He said, our staff, we spend every Monday praying for an hour together. And some of my, I think some of the most powerful prayer meetings that we've had were when we spent the whole hour just praising God, revering God for who he was. We didn't even get to the other stuff because we were so caught up in how incredible and mighty and perfect and loving our God is. There's no need for us to get to the other stuff. We can get to that later. This is what's most important now. So if you spent all of your time just praising God for who he is, it'd be very, very worthwhile. Next part, we see that God, God wants his kingdom to come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This aligns with our response. This is how we are to respond to God's uh, perfection, God's holiness. We respond by desiring his will to be done, not our own. We desire his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we have a tough time with this one for sure, right? We have a tough time saying, God, what you want, not what I want. We often have wants and desires that we want God to fulfill. And they maybe aren't even aligned with anything remotely close to God's will. As you learn, as you continue to respond in telling God, hey, God, your will be done. I think of Romans 12, 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I think as you pray prayers like this, God, your will be done. Let it be on earth as it is in heaven. What you want goes. As you pray these things, say these words, God transforms your very heart to align with his desires, his will. And secondarily, you see the response is repentance. You see repentance, asking God for the forgiveness of our sins because, man, we, we are sinful. We are broken. We don't have it all figured out. 
And this reflects God's very heart of humility. We, we need to operate in humility. So we request forgiveness from God. And then on the back end, we thank him because we know that if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, you have been forgiven once and for all. And this continuing repentance and belief is a process we call sanctification, which means becoming more like Christ. We've learned a ton of stuff in the Sermon on the Mount that is going to help us along that journey. But we request forgiveness just as we should forgive the people around us. Because Jesus forgave us, so we extend forgiveness to the people around us. So when we pray, man, our aim should be to be in the presence of our God who delights in your company, and he delights to hear from you. It brings God joy when you go to him and you talk to him. I, I imagine uh, the relationship between a grandparent and a grandchild, and it makes me think of this because of Levi, and I've just seen it on display the last year pretty profusely. But what happens is the grandparent man, all they care is about the presence of their grandchild, man. Like every time I see Mike and Erica or my parents with Levi, like that's all they care about. Like whatever Levi wants to do, they do. They look stupid. They look silly. They d play with whatever toys he wants to play with. All that matters is he's in the presence of uh, their grandchild. That's all they care about. And I imagine God is somewhat similar. Like he just adores you. When you go to him, you're his creation. He spoke you into existence. He know, has known you since you were in your mother's womb. If that's the case, man, he must absolutely delight when you get on your knees and you go before him and you talk to him, you pour out your heart to him. Imagine he absolutely adores you in those moments. Not that he doesn't in other moments, but he absolutely adores you when you come at his feet and pray to him. And lastly, we, we see readiness. We see a, a readiness that's exemplified in lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We know there's an enemy out there that wants to do you harm. That's quite the opposite of God, a good and gracious and loving person. And God, the devil's the exact opposite. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He wants to take you as far away from Jesus as you can. And you can't believe in, in uh, ultimate good without believing in an ultimate bad. And that's the reality for us as followers of Jesus. We have an enemy that wants to see you suffer, that wants to see you far from God. And so we ask God to prepare our hearts to withstand whatever the enemy throws our way. And we ask him for protection. We ask him to prepare our hearts so that we are able to withstand. So let's talk about how uh, not to fast. Let's jump into fasting. I want to spend the majority of our time here, but I talked a lot about prayer. Um, likewise, what you see with fasting is don't fast how the hypocrites fast. They fast so that others might see them. See the parallel? Pretty similar motivation to prayer is the hypocrites are doing it just so others will see them. That's what Jesus says in verse 16. That's the only reason they're fasting. So other people might look at them and say, oh man, you're so holy. You got it figured out. You're so righteous. Great job. Like that's all they care about. The ESV uses the word uh, disfigure their faces. That's what the hypocrites do. And I don't think that's like doing stuff to your face, but quite literally looking like you're fasting, like you're hungry, looking like you're sad, downtrodden, like you're walking around, you're moping, like, oh man, I just want someone to ask me if I'm okay and I can tell them I'm fasting. Because if they ask, then it's okay. Um, I'm imagining that's kind of what they're doing. 
they maybe don't do their hair that day. They don't put on their makeup. I don't know if they had makeup back then. Uh, but they're doing things to make people know, like, hey, this isn't normal me. This isn't it. But for us, when we fast, it's like, hey, do up your hair. Look good. The first point is we fast in secret. We fast in secret. We're supposed to not let anyone see that we're fasting. We're supposed to let no one be able to guess that you're fasting. Do your makeup. Look good. Feel good. High energy. Like, no one should know that you are fasting. And that is because you are receiving a sustenance that isn't from food, but it's from God. It's from his spirit that is living within you. So Jesus says, wash your face. Look your best. Anoint your head with oil. We don't really do that. But, I don't know, do your hair. Do all the things that you normally do. Look to the nines. Look like you want to be out there. That's what Jesus is talking about. Let no one know that you're fasting because it can lead us to ulterior motivations like the hypocrites. He's not necessarily saying that you need to let no one know that you're fasting. Same with prayer. Public and group prayer, awesome. Public group fasting can be great. If we fasted as a church together, you could consider that public fasting. And it's good as long as our motivations are in the right place. And so we can do these things with other people. We can pray and we can fast with others. And so when we think about fasting, one of the first questions that came to my mind is like, when do you fast? Like, what is the point of withholding from food? I think we've covered that. But when do we do it? Like, what is the circumstance where you would fast? And you see so many examples in the Bible of people fasting for different reasons. But I want to give you five that might be most applicable to us in this space. Number one, repentance and humility. It's a great reason to fast. Think about the story of Jonah. When Jonah goes into Nineveh, doesn't want to tell them about God. God basically makes him and he says a couple of words and the Ninevites come to repentance and they say, man, we don't have it all figured out. And God, we submit to you. You are Lord. They start fasting. They put on sackcloth. And this is a moment where they are putting on display to God, not to anyone else, to God, that they are remorseful for their sin and they want to turn from their sin. So it's a moment where you can put on display to God, hey, I am I'm sorrowful over my sin, and I want to turn to you. I want to live for you now, God. And so maybe you've been walking in some sin personally, and you've been struggling, having a really hard time. Maybe you need to fast. Maybe you need to take food away from your body for a period of time, maybe a day, maybe a longer as your body gets used to fasting. But You might need to starve your flesh so that your spirit can be fed, so that you can be free from sin. Not that you won't receive forgiveness if you don't fast, because we know that's not true. But on the other side of it, man, there is some beautiful things that have come as a result of starving your flesh so that you can feed your spirit. Number two, seeking guidance from God. I think this one might be the most applicable to us. And we see this multiple times in the Bible. Book of Ezra, uh, it's a time where the Israelites, they're seeking guidance from God and also protection, but primarily like, God, where do we go? What do we do? So they start fasting together. They go on a long fast and sincerely uh, demonstrate like, God, we want your direction, your will to be done, not our own. 
I hear stories of people fasting in our church pretty regularly for guidance. And maybe that's whether or not you should go on a church plant, whether or not you should give, whether or not you should uh, move to a new city, a new job. People tend to fast leading up to those bigger life decisions because you genuinely just want to know God's will for you. That's the thing that we've seen consistently throughout Scripture. So maybe you need to make a big life decision right now. Fast. Go to the Lord. Say, God, I'm going to withhold from this good gift that you give your people so that I might receive a greater gift in your guidance. Number three, spiritual discipline. And this is one that no matter where you find yourself in the room today, you can absolutely partake in. The first example that comes to mind is Matthew chapter 4. If you recall Jesus, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days before he enters into his earthly ministry. He starves himself from food so that it might deepen his dependence on God. And I think we could all use that, right? We could all use a deepened dependence on God and his will and his desire. We could all use that. And so maybe that looks like a weekly rhythm with your family. Maybe it looks like a monthly rhythm with your village or your friends. Or maybe it's completely personal. No matter what it looks like, I think we all should participate in this to some extent, especially after what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Number four, uh, lamentation and mourning. Lamentation and mourning. The book of 2 Samuel, David, he spends time fasting after Saul and Jonathan die. Jonathan, best friend, brother figure. Saul was actually trying to kill him, but he actually still fasts for him. He still mourns his death. Pretty, pretty, pretty crazy there. But when something happens in your life that is traumatic, that is difficult, that is hard, it's a very biblical response for you to fast and to seek comfort from the Lord. This fasting is an an opportunity for you to show your sincere devotion to the Lord. It's going above and beyond to seek the Lord's comfort and the Lord's will for your life. And so if you're in a season where you are sad and you are struggling, granted, most of us, when we have a really traumatic event, it's a natural response to some extent for us to uh, not eat, but not because we're fasting. But in this case, it'd be intentionally not eating food so that you might seek comfort purely from the Lord and not from food. Because we tend to seek it in food. I don't know about you, I do, but we tend to seek comfort in food quite a bit. It's a good gift that God's given us that we need to live, but the greatest comfort is not food. It is God himself. Number five, a spiritual preparation. Uh, Acts 13, Barnabas and Paul and other church leaders, they fast before they decide who to send out um, into the ministry. And the Holy Spirit basically says, all right, send out uh, Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13. And so they were praying for this spiritual preparation for the people that they were going to send out to do mission. And I think this one is where I want to take us to some response. I want us to take action based off of this one. Like Mark talked about, we're starting uh, uh, Yopro Villages this week. And all of the villages are way smaller than we've ever had. We have less people in them solely for the purpose of reaching people that don't know Jesus. We want people that are not connected to a local church or that don't know Jesus to get invested into one of these communities that we call villages. And your guys' hearts are to reach those people. So we sacrifice, have smaller villages with less of our friends so that we might make room in our tiny homes for these people. That's what we are doing. So 
what if we fasted as a village? Each of your individual villages, you chose a day, uh, a span of time to fast from food solely so that you're reminded every time you're hungry, oh, I'm spo- I need to pray for my village. I need to pray that God might do something mightily in my people that already exist, do something in us, and likewise introduce us to people that want to know Jesus. We want people to come to the knowledge of the truth of who our Jesus is. And we know that that is God's will as well. For those of you going to the campus, you're also starting new villages. You're about to meet, if you're doing moving on Thursday, you're about to meet a bunch of freshmen that have no idea what they're going to do in college. And much less than that, knowing what they're going to do after college. What if God wanted to use you to share the gospel with them, get to know them. They respond to the gospel. They come to know Jesus, and they're sitting in this room with us five years from now as a member of this church in the city. Like, that's happened multiple times. Some of you were reached as freshmen. So what if, as you go to start these villages on campus, you chose a time to fast together? Seek the Lord in that. Oh, man, I I can imagine if we took up this discipline, this practice with the right motivation. Oh, man, I, I, I can't imagine what God would do in our church. And so that's our response this morning. That is our response. Wherever you might find yourself, maybe one of those five uh, reasons why you might fast, maybe you fall into one of those or multiple of them. What if we stepped into it, fully stepped into it? Jesus said, when are you fast? Let's do it. When are we going to do it? That's the question for us. When are you going to fast? And I, I think if your motivation is wrong at the beginning, ask the Lord to change it. He's in the business of changing hearts. He's changed your heart enough to be here today. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, he's changed your heart in some ways to be receptive to himself. So this morning, man, there's no guilt. There's no shame. I don't know if you've never fasted before and you've been a follower of Jesus your whole life. I don't, I don't know where you find yourself, but there's no guilt. But our prayer and fasting, my hope would become a demonstration to God of the sincerity of our hearts in that. And so before I pray, I want to leave you with one more thing. It's just an illustration. Imagine you're walking out of your house every single morning. There's a scale that's sitting on your countertop. One side you have apathy, one side you have hunger. The apathy uh, quite literally means like you're just doing whatever. You don't necessarily care. It's not necessarily negative, but you're, you're not intentional. You're just apathetic towards the rest of your day. You might walk up to that scale, just drop a little marble in the apathy and walk out the door and just do your life, do your job. That's cool. The other side is hunger. What if we put marbles into that side? And I think we put marbles into that side through prayer and fasting. What does your prayer life look like? Are you able to drop marbles into that side and increase the hunger for God to move in our midst within our church? My biggest prayer is that we would not just grow in the disciplines themselves, but maybe a month, maybe a year from now, you look back at something like today and you can say, man, my devotion, my love for Jesus has increased tenfold just because I was able to participate in these practices that Jesus says are good. So where we aim to go as a church Man, it's it's not going to be done on our own power, right? It's not going to be done on our own. We need the very power and presence of God. And how we're going to find that is through prayer and fasting. Let me pray for us. 
Father, thank you for who you are. God, thank you that you give us uh, clarity in the ability to fast and pray. God, even as I stand here and pray right now, whatever words that come out of my mouth, Lord, I pray that they would just be glorifying to you. God, all the words that we might say when we pray, you know the, the very words that are coming out before we say them. You know our hearts. As we fast, you know our motivations. You know the things that are going on in our hearts and the reasons by which we are doing them. But Lord, I pray you would uh, course correct our motivations where they are wrong, where they don't align with God, what you designed uh, these two things to do for us and do for you. Lord, I pray as we move into this next season of our church, as school starts, Lord, as we maybe take steps towards fasting as villages, God, would you do something incredible in our church? When would you continue to refine us and teach us and grow us in our love and adoration of you, God? And secondarily, we wanna see people come to faith. God, would this fasting, this uh, prayers that we uh, give to you, God, would you uh, do something incredible within our church and let us be a part of what you want to do in this city. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.